If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. When the whole world seems turned upside down, we sort through it together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Hello and welcome to Weekends with Jason Olborn Sunday edition. I'm delighted to have your company today. And what a day it is to join in for what's going to be a ripper, a bonanza of a four-hour festival of entertainment information and new ideas that you may never have even considered before. I hope you're able to tune in yesterday for another big show that we had. And one of the highlights was the two pilots, Captain Dan Hanley and Doug Green, coming on to talk about their work in uncovering 9-11 truth. And at the end of the interview, I asked both pilots about what they thought was the ending up point for MH370, the Malaysian Airlines aircraft that vanished out of thin air. And they pointed to some work that Dan's been doing and both confirmed that they believe the plane and with evidence ended up on Diego Garcia. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, you can check out yesterday's podcast when you get to the tntradio.live website. Well, on today's show, my first guest I'll bring in momentarily, his name is Patrick Burns. He, would you believe it? You're not going to believe it, but he's a man who uncovered the biggest money laundering operation involving even Pablo Escobar. That's just a little bit of a hint about what's coming up in a moment. And also later on today, I'm going to interview former second and Lieutenant um, Alastair Pope, who fought in the Australian military, about his experiences and also about this phenomenon of Australians moving to Vietnam for retirement and living out a lifestyle there. Alastair spends a lot of his time in that country and we'll find out a bit more how that actually works. In the third hour, Russian journalist Mira Tirada will be on to talk about the exposing of the laundering of military weapons from Ukraine that are being sold into criminal gangs and also being used to kill innocent people in the Donbass region. We'll get onto that one as well. And in the last hour, one of our own, Kate Shemarani, will be joining me to talk about natural health. And I'll be asking some questions about all sorts of things and possibly even including the very inconvenient way of how it is you can use natural therapies for women who are suffering from menopause or going through that phase, I shouldn't say suffering, but it is a complicated matter with hormones, of course, as we all understand. And that's some information that I think will be invaluable when we get to the uh, final hour in today's show. But let's get started with an absolute ripper. Patrick Burns is a former US Marine, retired US Special Agent for the US Department of Treasury, and US federal expert witness on money laundering and illicit financial crimes. He's investigated criminals and terrorists throughout the world, including leading an anti-terrorist unit in Iraq while embedded with the US Army during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And he's the author of The Coin Store, a true story of drug cartels, mobsters, cops and agents, an amazing story about an ingenious billion-dollar worldwide money laundering scheme that swapped stolen mob gold for Pablo Escobar's dirty cash through a small coin shop in the United States. Patrick Burns, welcome to Weekends. Thank you. Good to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you on the show, and what a story. I mean, this has got everything. It plays out like it could be a Jack Reacher movie. It could even be Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. But, Patrick, this is your story, The Coin Store. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started out to be the one to get a lead that you interpret as just a bit of busy work to sort of learn the ropes that <clears throat> turns out to be one of the biggest money laundering stories in history? Well, sure. Uh, 
The background to this story is that Rhode Island was a hub for gold industry and jewelry industry, having big companies like Monet and such. And the, ma the mafia also happened to be headquartered in Federal Hill in Providence, Rhode Island. And they controlled a, a lot of different businesses, you know, strip joints, and but they also controlled stolen gold because it was so lucrative. And they had one of their primary fences in the state happened to be this dropout high school kid who aspired all his life to be a criminal. And anyway, he he did develop a, a multi-million dollar fencing operation for the gold, and he would had a system where he would bought his own refinery. The thieves would bring the gold in the back door. He'd melt it down and sell it back into the same businesses that they probably robbed it from, you know, like Monet, you know, mm. and it was he basically was laundering the gold for years and no one could catch him. He was just too quick. If it, if they, the police got a tip, you know, that, oh, this gold robbery went here, he already had it melted down within an hour. And once it's melted into a lump of gold, it's untraceable. You can't prove that it came from anywhere. So he was very, he, as a high school dropout, he was just exceptionally uh, uh, well adapted to the criminal activities. And matter of fact, his, when he dropped out of high school, his father took him to a local coin store, said, I want you to give my boy a job. So he gave him a job. He lasted like three weeks and the guy fired him because he said his hands were quicker than his eyes. You know, he, he was stealing the inventory. <laughs> and two weeks after he was fired, he opened up his own store across the street and then a suspicious fire burned down the original employer's building. So he was a criminal right down to the bone. I mean, it's, that's how he started his life. And then eventually he got bigger and bigger. And uh, well, anyway, after he he was so big that he was he decided to expand his, his activities to New York City and he wanted to buy more gold. And uh, once he got there, he found out he had a problem because if you withdraw large amounts of cash to pay the thieves, because they don't want checks, right? You withdraw lots, lots of cash, the banks have to file these forms. They're called currency transaction reports. Well, they were started filing them. And then uh, they came into the IRS where I worked and the senior agents were all offered to take a look at it. And they all turned it down because they said, we know this guy. He's just a mob fence. It's he's in the gold business. Gold is a cash business. So they overlooked all of the cash, but it was like millions. And uh, then uh, I got hired and they said, what are we going to do with this kid? You know, just give him this CTR and tell him to take a look. We know there's nothing there, but it'll give him something to do. It would be like, uh, you know, learn as you go. So, so I, everyone thought I was had a dead lead, but once I started following it with the most uh, very aggressively, uh, I I began following him around. I began going in his trash and doing all these unconventional methods that the senior guys thought I was crazy. I would they'd walk in the office and I'd have a bunch of trash bags on my desk and I'm putting together scraps of paper and I eventually started showing pieces of money and uh, delivery receipts and they all started saying geez maybe he is onto something and then I eventually went to New York uh, where I started searching his packages and started finding money and they were in the he would he was uh, sending hundreds of thousands of dollars in gold cans labeled as scrap gold but when I searched them and opened them they're full of money so then it was eventually um, I, I get a, one of the undercover vans you see on TV and I'm monitoring all the activities, the brink trucks coming and going. And uh, the, all the, my supervisor says, oh, well, we'll give them a few more guys, a few more guys. Well, eventually over the course of like a year, there's probably like 100 people working on this thing, including Columbia and Scotland Yard. <clears throat> and 
uh, they got the senior agents that turned it down. They were all laughing at the first time they, when I said, I think I found something. Now they're all on board. And uh, eventually the FBI, Customs, DEA, <clears throat> like I said, Scotland Yard, we're all chasing him. And at the last minute, he flees and uh, he disappears. And uh, I'm, in, I'm in London. And uh, I, I asked him, I said, oh, <clears throat> he fled to London. That was the last place we traced him to on a flight. Can we slow down the 50 arrests in America? They said, no, no, this is this is too big. We can't just slow it down and uh, we can't stop it and wait for you. So the arrests go down and then just by luck, he turned up in Switzerland and then we fly to Switzerland and we catch him there. And, and then it looks like we got a success. But no, the, the, the link we needed to connect him to all the money was on this handheld uh, wizard, they call it pocket wizard. He's able to destroy it in front of the judge. And then we're like back to square one. The whole story is like that. Every time we thought we had a breakthrough, we'd fall backwards. It'd be a disaster. And uh, uh, it went on. The case went on for like three years. And uh, eventually, though, he was convicted and uh, he got sentenced to 660 years. Uh, we seized hundreds of millions of dollars around the world. And uh, and then we like I said, told you before, the notorious coin store was turned into a flower shop and that was the end of the story. But the book I, I wrote actually explains more in detail of how, how we went from this untouchable guy uh, to, to the to race around Europe and, you know, the steps that were taken and all the problems and setbacks. And anyway, it was, it's a, <clears throat> I, I, I've been selling it for the book's been online available and I've sold thousands of copies around the world and it's got good ratings. So, uh, I think everyone likes it. Well, it, it's it's impossible not to like a story like that. From uh, the idea of being a novice investigator, almost palmed off to turn it into something else uh, that hundreds of officers from different departments and organisations from around the world are involved in is, is quite incredible. Tell me, um, going back into that case, did you, well, given that you started the case and then obviously people came on board, how were you treated at that point? Did you still have some sort of control, or were you treated as if you were just a novice uh, cop and? Therefore, others would come in and tell you what they needed to be done. No, uh, actually, I had control because the, the, the rules are if you start a, an investigation, they, they assign you as the lead. And so even though I was a novice, my name was the only one that was on the search warrants and, and uh, uh, I was the lead. Now, at one point, after I un uncovered all the money going through New York City and the, the trash showing faxes of hundreds of thousands to New York to uh, actually to an uh, apartment that he had rented from an ambassador of Italy that he had he had got pr diplomatic protection uh, for this apartment with the fax because it was in the name of a diplomat because his his condo was directly across the street from the UN. So anyway, but uh, we couldn't touch it, but I identified the diplomat that was working that was uh, allowing him to use that. And uh, anyway, once it got so big at a certain point, the US attorney called me in and said, the FBI wants to talk to you. So they sat me down and they had a big pitch, you know, uh, we can do this, we can do that. You're only one guy. You can't possibly do this. Uh, we're going to give you all these resources. We're going to replace your cameras with ours and your surveillance with ours. And we're going to give you state police. And, it, you know, they pro promised me the world, they said. But there's one catch. I said, what's that? They said, you're going to have to give up the lead. And I said, no. And they, they were shocked. They didn't know what to say. I said, I'll make this case on my own. Uh, I'll make some case. Maybe it's not as big as yours, but I'm going to make a case because I started it. 
And uh, they looked around. They asked me to leave the room. And uh, I left the room and the U.S. attorney talked with the FBI. And uh, a little while later, they said, come on back in. And they were like, while I was outside the room, I, I, uh, they were saying, you know, well, what are we going to do? We can't just walk away from this thing. Oh, you know what? We'll, we'll let them be the lead. And you know, eventually we'll steal it from them. But for now, we'll still let them be the lead, you know. So for, for the three years, I was a lead. I mean, they, they didn't like it. But the, if, they, if I would have said no, then that the rules were that I had to have the lead. So they, they wouldn't be involved. So uh, I was able to retain it uh, anyway, even though there was a, everyone else wanted to take it over. Now, what year did this all begin and how old were you at that stage? Um, I think the investigation started in 1988 and I was like 28 or 29 years old. And uh, it ended in 1991 with his arrest finally in 1991 in Switzerland. And now, uh, yeah. you, you see, you, you're getting in and you're, you're a novice cop at the age of 28, 29. What were you doing prior to joining the force? Well, let's see. Well, I went first, I was in the Marines for a few years after high school. Then I decided to go to college and get a degree. And the reason I and then I just picked on a degree in accounting because my father had actually gone to the FBI and asked them, what kind of degrees are you guys looking for? My son wants to be a federal agent. And they said, we're looking for lawyers and accountants. And I decided, well, lawyer, that's seven years college uh, accounting, four years. So I picked up accounting, even though I had absolutely no interest in being accounting in an accountant. And I actually got my CPA license just to do this case and feel like I could you know, sit across the table from their hotshot lawyers. So uh, anyway, so I, I picked accounting and then eventually uh, I applied for the Treasury Department because I had seen, you know, the Elliot Ness movies and I thought, you know yes. what, they got Al Capone, maybe I can get some mobsters too because I was familiar with Federal Hill filled with the mobsters. And uh, I, so I decided I applied for the Treasury Department and they they picked me up and one thing led to this this lead and uh, when, just the, uh, let's see, recently uh, my, my former supervisor, the one that hired me and who oversaw this, he said, he said, Pat, I just want to thank you for making my career. He said, you made my 20, 30 years worthwhile with that case. And I want to thank you. That was my supervisor. And uh, one of the attorneys involved, he passed away recently, Mike Davitt. He's a great guy. He, he supported me through the, through the case. And his wife sent me a letter. He says, Pat, I just want to let you know, Mike Davitt passed, Mike passed away. He always you know, enjoyed your friendship, and he always credited you with making his quote career case. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, I besides my, you know, help making my own uh, cases come true. There were other people affected, and I, when they tell me that I made their their careers worthwhile, that's that's a very warm feeling, you know. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. It's quite incredible to think that a young bloke that comes in who has uh, U.S. Marine history and the determination to go to college and unbelievably to choose accounting and then end up in Treasury Department in 1988. And the reason that I'm, I'm circling back again to this year was that the movie The Untouchables came out in 1987. It was directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, it starred, as we know, Kevin Costner and Sean Connery, who went on to win a Best Supporting Actor for that that role. And it was written by the great playwright uh, and screenwriter David Mamet. So you can see how this would just be something, a man in his 
he's in mid twenties looking for his next career move to move in. I mean, it is fairy tale stuff, and it seems that the story of Coinstore is every bit as sensational as uh, Al Capone's story in um, in the Untouchables. Um, it, it, Pat, this is incredible. So you land in it. Do you kind of feel in in many ways that you're just sort of floating that this is somehow not real that maybe there's something going on, or or are you firmly grounded and going no? I am the right person at the right time in the right place for this. Yeah, well, I I think I was the right person because there were other agents in that. There's an office full of agents. They were all offered this opportunity before I got hired, and they all said, "No, no, no, we'll be wasting our time on that one." And then when I when I come back to the office and I got a bag of trash and I'm sifting through putting the scraps of people people papers together that were shredded. They're like, what's this guy doing? Who's going to be your witness? The trash man? They're all chuckling and laughing at me, you know. And when I'm searching the Brinks trucks, they're saying, it's a cash business. You're not proving anything. You're wasting your time. Over and over and over again, they said, you're wasting your time. This guy doesn't know what he's doing until finally when the FBI and everyone starts getting involved, they're like, well, they, they don't know what to say now. They've got egg on their face. They, they've all been talking me down for three years, and now they're all working under me as the as the lead, you know. So, yeah. so very, very satisfying that, that uh, it, I mean, it was my career case at the Treasury Department, too. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's very satisfying. It was worthwhile. Oh, absolutely. And I want to take a break in a moment and come back and get into some of that detail because it is where the money is. It seems where it's traceable and therefore be able to follow to the pathway to the crime and the criminals involved. Quite incredible to think that this is some over 30 years ago, almost well, that 36 years ago now, and we're still talking about it. And it sounds like it could have been in a movie that you watched on Saturday night, or if you're on the other side of the world from me tonight, in fact, Saturday night's one of those types of movies that you will. We will take a break now on weekend and we'll be back with more with Pat Burns after this on TNT. TNT Radio's Kate Shimarani. Don't stop taking prescription medication. Always go and see your indoctrinated GP, always. But with psychiatric drugs, you have to actually wean off them. They're very addictive and you have to wean off them. Now, I find all this really concerning. But what I cannot get my head around is the worst drug of all. They just let it on the market all the time. Sugar, 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 sugar. And then that's not even to bring in like MSG, monosodium glutamate. And, and I, if I I can say, you know, you go into one of these garages and you see all the people going for food. There's nothing to eat in there. I very rarely can find anything to eat in any of these places. And if you go into the supermarket, there's only the first two aisles that have got real food. The rest, it, it's not food. And I see what people buy. I've covertly actually filmed people's trolleys, not them, don't get all excited, but I have filmed trolleys uh, to have a look what people are buying and it's shocking because what you eat determines what your brain's going to be like and your teenagers' brains do not stop developing till they're about 25 years of age. Kate Shimarani on TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk a hoax about carbon dioxide in the climate has caused a global energy and economic disaster. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio.
Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Patrick Burns, who was a former U.S. Marine, a retired U.S. Special, special Agent for the U.S. Department of Treasury and a U.S. Federal Expert Witness on Money Laundering and Illicit Financial Crimes and the author of the book, The Coin Store, that exposes one of the biggest money laundering schemes you have ever or probably never heard of, in fact. But this story took place way back in 1988, and we're talking with Pat now. Pat, the... Um, the way that the gold industry worked, this sort of illegal uh, situation, the the trading, et cetera, you describe it as um, uh, the gold industry to, to the Patriarca crime family was like LaGuardia Airport was to the Lucchese crime families depicted into good in Goodfellas. Can you explain how this daily business goes on in, in the business of gold before you come along? What are they just getting about? What are they doing in this gold trading that they're going about with? Well, uh, the 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 uh, they called them uh, like uh, legitimate. They used the word legitimate, the, the mafia, for the career criminals that they used. You know, not the startups. They would say, "We got a legitimate guy. He's going to be coming over to your shop today to make a delivery." So a little while later, uh, there'd be an armed robbery of an armored gold truck that was on it. This, this is this is an actual example. We actually had wires inside the building hearing all this. This isn't just speculation. So there's a, an armed robbery in Monet. The news says, you know, shows a here's the truck, here's the driver, armed robber. Two hours later, one hour later, the, the, the armed robber pulls up to Sakosha Coins' back door. He brings in the stolen gold. It's got... It's got the labels on it, property of Monet. The crew gets to work. They start cutting off the labels, cutting off the serial numbers. You hear them talking. First thing we do is get rid of the serial numbers. Okay, then this goes down to the to the refinery. Then they whisk the, 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 the pellet. They were gold pellets down to the refinery. They melt it into bars. And now, even if the police 30 minutes later showed up, it's too late. There's no more pellets. There's no more serial numbers. There's no record in the books. And it's done. Uh, day later... The thief shows up, they pay him 85 cents on the dollar, and then they pay 15 percent to the head, to the, to the head of the mafia. That's their cut. And they would have an actual guy. His, his code name was the ferret. He would come over every week for the mob's cut. And one time they actually said, well, this guy didn't clear it with the with the hill. And they said, should we pay him the 15 percent? They said, if this guy didn't clear with the hill, that might be the end of him. We'll just, but we're going to pay the hill one way or the other. So, the the penalty was was death, and that's not that's real. Uh, there's there's stories about dead bodies. Uh, on one of the cases uh, that I wrote about, they find the dead body of this gold thief at uh, Beaver Beaver Front Park, and uh, is burned and riddled with bullets, and he didn't he didn't get permissions. So they kill him. That that's how they kept everyone in line. But Sakoshi was approved. Uh, he was one. Of, he was their guy, and all the gold, stolen gold in the state, had to go through him. That way, that's how they get the, the mob cut, because he'll take it off the top and give it to them. So it would, after it would be melted, then his refinery guys would sell it to a jeweler like Monet, and they would make. They might be the same jeweler that they stole it from, and they would sell it, and then they would make their jewelry, and the cycle would continue. Uh, then they would eventually go to the bank and they would take cash out to pay the thieves because they don't want to get paid by check. So, uh, but the liability for, for the, for the uh, Sakosha operation was that the thieves want to get paid in cash. And the new money laundering law came into effect in 1986. It was real, actually never used in Rhode Island. I was the first one that ever used it. 
And I, I was the only one that actually had been going through the training for it. So uh, in 1986, they had the money laundering law. And that's why uh, I had gone to the training. They gave me the, the currency report to, to look into. And uh, anyway, after, so his problem was I got to get cash. And as his business grows, I got to get more cash and more cash. And eventually he wanted to go to New York to get more gold. And the problem was he's got more cash now, a uh, more uh, you know a need for more cash, and the reports stop being filed, and I get on to him. But uh, then he's he finds the solution for his problem with getting the cash out of the banks without going on the radar of the government. He meets the Colombian drug cartel in New York, and they say we have a problem getting our cash back to Colombia, and we can't just send our guys to the bank to make a deposit, you know. They don't have accounts. They'll be they'll be identified right away. We need someone that at least has the appearance of a legitimate business to get it into their accounts, and then you wire the money. Now, once they once they get the, the cash into the bank, you can wire seventy billion dollars around the world without another form being filed. You know, the trick is getting it into the bank. So that's what Sakosha's uh, uh, niche was. He would he had the couriers, and he eventually set up companies all around America doing the same thing. The, the drug cartel would three, three unnamed guys would show up with duffel bags, you know, speak no English, have guns. They'd show up at his office that he had under the name Steve Yurikim. He had an alias, Yurikim, which it was in the Diamond District, which is a Hebrew area, you know, Jewish people. Mm. And he and the word uh, Yurikim in Hebrew is green, slang for cash. So he was Mr. Cash in New York City. So they would the, the Colombian drug cartel would bring would send their guys from Corona, New York to Manhattan. And we tried to follow them. It's impossible in New York City with all the traffic. You can't do it. It was impossible. But anyway, he would show up with duffel bags. He would count the money. He'd put it in the, the shipping containers labeled as gold when it was cash. He'd bring it downstairs to Brinks because there was a Brinks office downstairs, uh, three, six floors below him. And they would ship it wherever he wants. And. He was a very savvy uh, criminal and very confident, overly confident. And that man, that's was one of his mistakes. One time when I eventually got a search warrant for those Brinks containers, I went to New York City to the man to the Brinks. Uh, I had actually been an armored guard when I was in college working part time. So I was aware of all the records that they keep. I, I knew that if he's shipping things, he has to declare what it is for insurance, where it's going to, where it's coming from, who signs for it. So. I was aware of this and uh, I, I said, well, we'll go to Brinks and I'm going to get records because I saw one of the Brinks trucks go to his, his refinery. So I went to Brinks and I said, I got I asked the judge, first of all, for a search warrant. First, first, she denies it. And finally, she reluctantly gives me it. There's a, that's explained more detail in the book. But she hated cops. She didn't want to give it to me. Reluctantly, she gave it to me. So I had 10 days to search his packages. And in order to get the the warrant, I had to limit it to only packages that go from that office to Rhode Island, not in LL, not to his office, LA, Chicago, anywhere else. I had to make it very limited. So I did. So uh, I told, I hands it to the, uh, the uh, manager, Murray Massover. I said, here's my warrant. I got 10 days. I'll be in the hotel down the street. Call me when you get a delivery. He said, well, we get deliveries every day. I should be calling you this afternoon. I said, great. Well, this afternoon comes no, I call up any delivery. No, that's unusual, but we'll probably get one tomorrow. Then I have to report to the U.S. attorney in, in Providence who supported my warrant. And uh, so how much money did you get today? Uh, well, I, I met the how much money? Well, I nothing. Click. 
Jim, hello? They hang up on me, you know? And that that happened every single day for nine, nine and a half days. Every day I'd call at the end of the day, no package, no package, no package. On the 10th day, I called to sell him, tell him, thanks, my warrant's about to expire. And the manager says, oh, you, uh, hello, Murray Masso. I said, hey, uh, I just want to let you go. He goes, are you coming down? I go, coming down for what? He said, your package is here. I'm like, are you kidding? No. So I go down there, I rush down there. And I, as I, I mean, I'm running down there. I got a copy machine to copy whatever's in there. And uh, I, I, as I open the front door of, of the, the Brinks office, the, the, they, they swing another door out in front of me. All these guards are lined up along the walls. And at the end of this little hallway is a table. And on top of it is a Brinks can with the top already opened and the money just sticking out. And I'm like, this is great. So I start taking all the pictures of it. And after I'm finished, I want to take a picture of the delivery label. I take, I take as I focus in, it says it's destined for Louisiana. No, no, Illinois. Where is it? Yeah, a state that's not covered on my warrant. And I went, what the? I said, oh, my God. I said, I can't open this. This is an illegal search. Now, what had happened, uh, and I, I, I photographed it anyway, told the lawyers they were too happy. Uh, they said, but anyway, the next day I realized, you know what? Someone, someone's leaked this information. So I decided there was this salesman that also was in the meeting. And he looked like he looked like Sakosha, slick guy, Italian, grease back here, you know, I, gold jewelry. I said, you know what? I think it was him. So I called him up. I said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm all done with all my search. I won't be doing any more. Says, oh, great. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Then my supervisor sent two agents down to Tennessee because Fed uh, Brinks uses FedEx to transport international through their hub in Tennessee. So at three o'clock in the morning. In Tennessee, two agents were waiting when the next can came in from Manhattan Coin, his office. They opened it up. It's full of money. And I, I know that later on we showed that the, the salesman tipped them off and gave them a copy of my warrant. That's why they stopped. But as soon as I said it was over, they shipped another one. So anyway, we, we got around them. So that was like an almost failure. And then... Uh, Eventually, they allowed the, the evidence because they said, hey, you didn't. Oh, they, they said you didn't open up the package. It was open when you got there. One of the anxious guards opened it up. You know, he, he wasn't aware that he wasn't supposed to. So it ended up being a good search, even though I thought I was going to get fired for it. So uh, he was very sophisticated. He was and, you know, he was he's afraid of nothing. I mean, he knew that I'm w watching his packages and he decided I'm going to send one that's not covered. And uh, instead of just waiting another day, you know, and I would have been gone. He, he was, he's too greedy. He had he because he, he got 10 percent on it. So if it had three hundred thousand, he made thirty thousand. So he, the way he looked at it every day, he's not doing it. He's losing one hundred thousand dollars, you know. So anyway, yeah. that was just one of the, one of the scenes. It's it's quite incredible the detail um, that you just don't quite understand, and this is the encouragement for those that would like to uh, check out Pat's book, uh, The Coin Store. You can pick it up on Amazon.com, and I'll get Patrick to give us some more information at the end of the show. But uh, wow, and it seems like this this is the type of story that uh, we'll one day be seeing on our cinema screens or on on our small screens at home because it deserves to be made into a a, a really really good high quality uh, gangster film. Uh, 
concerning uh, financial crime, which is quite incredible. When you look forward uh, to where we are today, and um, and it seems that cryptocurrency is front and centre with all forms of financial crimes. But this is old school gold and cash, uh, and really only a generation and a half ago, thirty six years. But Pat, moving on from this particular situation, you've now got a big break in the case, uh, given now that you've you've filed for a warrant, you've realised that there was a, there was a mole there that uh, leaked the information, you, you outsmart him. And now, of course, you've got uh, other people involved. Is this the beginning of where it expands? And, and what happens from this point? Uh, after we had, he starts becoming aware that we start, the, it starts heating up where the FBI is now trying to follow him in New York City and follow the couriers, but they can't. But he becomes aware of it. And like he'll see he'll be driving down the road and any they said it's impossible to follow him. He'll be on the highway. If he sees a car behind him, the speed limit might be 70. He'll do 20. He, it's impossible <laughs> for you to stay behind him. He'll make you pass him. You know, yeah. he, he was just so he was very clever and uh, ambitious and fearless, really. So, um, yeah, so he started sensing that things are going to happen. So, you know what he does? This this the scene I saw with uh, in Goodfellas where they went to the uh, the mother's house and they were eating pasta and getting a shovel to, to bury the, the, the criminal. This there was a scene in this book just like that, whereas after Sakosha decides it's getting too hot, I'm going to flee. He has a little meeting at his mother's house. So this little white haired lady's walking around passing out doughboys because that's his favorite. And uh, she's just delighted that her son came to visit her from New York, hasn't been there. And all of these uh, thugs are sitting in her living room, you know, going by the names of uh, the Greek one, the Greek two, you know, Mickey, uh, the Fox, you know, they, they all had code names, Zorro, Howard the Duck. And once he started money laundering, everyone had a code name. You know, his wife was the cat. You know, you, so they would you never. If, and when we, we were listening on the phones, too, they would never say mo, gold. They would never say cash. They would never say drugs. And they would never say their, their names. They would oh, the cat's going to come by. The bear's going to come by. How are the ducks going to come by? So they, every step of the way was very difficult to, to unravel this thing. But anyway, they had a meeting towards the end when things started heated up and he's decided he's going to flee. But he wants to tell everyone, give everyone else a pep talk and tell them. It's okay. I want you guys to keep going. He plans to operate from overseas now and leave them to go down. And he's going to keep his operation going. So he says, so you guys just keep going. Oh, oh, let me back up a minute. On the TV, connected to the mother's TV is uh, a VCR. The night before, uh, we had a, a, a camera facing the back of the coin store, hidden in a uh, janitor's closet with a little hole in the in the in the door facing the camera. Anyway, one and it's in, the the closet was part of a, a athletic stadium for the high school. So one night, a couple kids are walking around drinking beer, and they they walk checking the doorknobs, and they see a little light going through the the hole in the door. They look inside. What the hell is this? They break the door down. They walk in, and there's this high tech VCR and camera, and and they're like, they they look toward they look they play the play button. It's Everything on it is the coin store's back door, people coming and going. So anyway, day later, when we're trying to listen on the, the their phones and the, the, the bikes and the microphones that are hidden in the coin store, all of a sudden, the uh, surveillance team comes in and says, it's gone. What's gone? The camera, everything, it's all gone. Well, the next day, in the, the, the Doughboy meeting, Sakosha and his crew are sitting there with his mother's TV, and attached to it is the VCR that says FBI 
property on it. Now they they know that the FBI's been watching them. Not only they're not worried, they, they they give it to the mother and they they're watching themselves and they're like, hey look, hey Tony, look at that beer belly on you. You better cut back on the doughboys. None for you. And how about you know they're joking about each other, you know. And uh, then he says, you guys keep going, get your lawyers in line, you know, everything will be fine. Don't worry, they're going to come for me first. I'll let you know, blah, blah, blah. Then they all disappear. Well, he he disappears to London, you know, and uh, while he's gone, no one hears from him. So we're listening on the phones. We hear all these guys talking. Where's Steve? Where's Steve? I don't know. One of the guys says, you know, he don't care about us. He, he don't care. And one guy's, I'm 59 years old. I got to worry about going to the can, you know. Oh, <laughs> and uh and the, what prompted those conversations is uh, the law, lawyers said that we didn't have enough evidence to prove that the Coinstar guys actually knew it was drug money because all they would do is get cash and they'd convert it to gold. So I said, I'm the lead. I'm going to go to the Coinstar, identify myself and see if I can get them to talk about it. So I did. I knocked mm -hmm. on it and I showed him my badge. I said, I want to talk to Anthony DeMarco, which is one of the guys that moved a lot of money. And I knew he wasn't there because I knew his car wasn't there. I didn't want to see him. I just wanted to bring drop his name. They call it tickling the wire. So after I dropped his name and they yelled at me and I banged the window after I left, one of the guys said, you see him, that asshole banged the window. I'm going to kill him if he ever comes back. But anyway, as time goes by, though, and Stephen's still going, they start talking. You know, they said, Stephen's, uh, you know, the feds are going to keep after him. They won't be happy. Till, till, till they got his fat ass hung on the on the wall. You know, you know, they, they're going to keep after him. And and then I'm, all of a sudden, at one point, they, the older guy leans to the young guy and says, you know why Burns was here, don't you? And the young guy says, no. The old guy says, it's not the gold. He, the, the young guy says, no. He says, and then he whispers as if he thinks he's being listened to, but he is. And he goes, it's not the gold. It's the money washing. Mm -hmm. that, that, that was why I knocked on the glass to get them to prove they knew what they were doing. And that was like the key piece of evidence for those guys that worked at the coin store. They knew exactly what they were doing. It, it came right out of their mouth. It's the money washing. So that, that, that was beautiful. So then they were watching the movie and on, on the TV and he fled and uh, they all got arrested. And, and while they were getting arrested, I was in London at the embassy watching the arrests on the, I'm drink, eat, having a coffee, eating a donut, thinking we're never going to find him because the arrests are going down. We don't even know what country he's in. They said he was arrived in London, then disappeared to Switzerland, and we don't know. So I, uh, I, I thought we're never going to catch this guy. And then, uh, so I'm watching on the news, CNN, going from LA to Florida, wherever. And uh, then we go, uh, we go over to the uh, um, Metropolitan Police with the Scotland Yard, someone we've been working with, Martin Conley, over there. So we, we, he says, I'm no longer in charge. Now it's a fugitive case. OK, so we meet with the fugitive guys and we're sitting down and they're asking me, what's Scotia's habits? Does he like prostitutes? Does he gamble? This and that. And I'm thinking this is a waste of time. It's never going to get us anywhere. And all of a sudden the door opens up and a guy leans in, another detective. They said they got him. They go, what do you mean? Oh, no, no. They said they, they found him. What do you mean? He said he and his wife just walked into the Air International Airport in Geneva. Me, so me and the customs agent were there. We didn't even look back, say goodbye. We're running out of there. Next thing we're on a flight. When then we're on a train going through Geneva. And uh, eventually we get to Geneva and the, 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 uh, the Geneva police. 
had arrested him at the airport. First of all, they said, yo, Steven Sikosha. He said, no, he had a pony passport. And then a fight ensued where he destroyed evidence. And But anyway, the detective's hand got bit and bloody, and he was ruthless when it comes down to it. But he had this very charming way about him uh, up to a point. And then once he knew, then the, all the charm was gone, you know. And uh, eventually they got him to the magistrate. And uh, it's it's a long, I, I don't have enough time to tell you the rest of what happens at the magistrate, but he eventually gets a hold of, uh, the evidence, the key evidence that we thought we we had, this little pocket organizer, and he asked for a lawyer. And the judge says, "Okay, we, call him." He says, "Well, my number is in the pocket organizer that's on your table." Now, mm. I had been there before he got into the room, and I had taped up the pocket organizer so no one would tamper it, and we could use the evidence. And the, so the judge says, "Okay, it's in there," and he picks it up, and the cop. The cop who's still bleeding uh, from getting bit and fighting with this guy once because because Steven Sikosha was 300 pounds. His name, he was also called the fat man. But anyway, he's a big guy. So they two cops were wrestled with him in the airport. It was hard. So anyway, they're watching this again and unfold. The, 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 the uh, naive magistrate starts ripping the tape off and the cops object, but he tells him to shut up. Next thing you know, he's got a, the, uh, the most critical piece of evidence opened up in front of him and he tells Sikosha, Okay, what's your lawyer's name? And Sikosha says, I'd rather do it myself. And he grabs it. Next thing you know, the cops are on his back, swinging around like drag dolls, but he breaks the most incriminating piece of evidence. And uh, Hold that thought right there, Patrick. We need to take a break, otherwise we'll, 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 get, we'll make a mess at the other end of the show. But that is a real cliffhanger because you don't want to go anywhere. We want to know what happens after this. It's quite an incredible story. No one could believe that this was only a matter of three decades ago, the way that crime was played. An incredible story here about the coin store with Patrick Burns. You are watching and listening to Weekends on TNT. While serving in Vietnam, a grenade took my ability to see. Today, I'm a sculptor creating new visions. Now, my fingers are my eyes. As a veteran, I know the challenges of life can be great. In my art, turning a lump of clay into something beautiful, that means a lot to me. Life is like that. We each must use what we can to make things better. DAV helps veterans like Michael get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. Now. I show others how they can create something with their own hands. With support from DAV, more veterans can shape their lives into a thing of beauty. My victory is bringing beauty into the world. Michael Naranjo, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. The next time you think you can illegally handle your mobile phone while driving and get away with it, think again. Phone detection cameras are in operation on New South Wales roads. Hello? So if you're driving and illegally handle your mobile phone, you can stop it or cop it. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. We're here with Patrick Burns, the author of the book, The Coin Store, a story that he lived through. 
in one of the great money laundering recovery stories in history and incredible. It, it, it took place after the movie The Untouchables came out and I think Goodfellas came out in 1990, Pat. So you were living what we were watching as the great Hollywood stories of the time. Incredible. So now Sakosha is in the court. He's destroying evidence in front of a magistrate. I mean, that's kind of a giveaway, but this is what he's doing at all costs to protect himself. Does he get convicted or, or where do we go from here? Well, the, after this most critical piece of evidence is destroyed, uh, I'm in another room looking at the other contents of his pocket from the airport. And there's all these ripped up pieces of paper. I put some of them together and it, it it's, uh, comes to find out it's a delivery sheet uh, for a TV in London. I, me and the customs agent that I was with, we faxed that to London. They find the flat in London where a TV was delivered because he was he had just moved there. He just fled, right? They got a search warrant for that flat, and in the drop ceiling, they found a backup for that piece of evidence, the critical piece of evidence in the pocket wizard. So wow. does that, it was like victory turns into disaster, turns into victory. Well, anyway, so the, but the, and that, that pocket, because he couldn't remember all of the bank accounts, the phony names, you know, the millions and billions of dollars, it all had to be somewhere, and I knew it had to be somewhere. He had to have it written down. It was all in this organizer. That was the key. So anyway, now we found it. But there's still we had another element of the crime is you have to prove it actually came from drugs. And so far, even though we've been doing it for three years, we hadn't proved that. So we get to court eventually, and uh, we're bringing in the, the ripped-up trash records I had, the videos of uh, all the armored trucks sh coming and going, uh, the, the uh, search warrants with all the money. But there's still no drugs. And as we go through the trial, they put on different witnesses. And at, at first, oh, and at the beginning of the trial, he had this hotshot lawyer from San Francisco. Name was Jack Hill. So he, he, he comes in with his Rolex watch and he's very smooth. And uh, they, they're going through the jury selection. And after jury selection is over, they're about to start the trial. He says to the prosecutor in Providence, I, I, I'm going to go home for the weekend. I'll be back Monday. And uh, there was already an, um, um, an agreement that if anything ever happens to him, he has to pick a local lawyer that's familiar with the state laws. So he picked this other guy at Sakosha's request, who's like a, a, um, a slug. He, he's terrible, you know, so but he was low cost. So they picked this guy was that was a slug uh, just as a formality. Well, anyway, hotshot Jack Hill takes a flight, but he doesn't go to San Francisco. He goes to Austria where there's a, a, a bank account and a, a safe deposit box with millions of dollars in it. He's going to and uh, he's going to go rescue the money. So the police already had an alert on that account. And the Scotland Yard calls me. They say, we got a list of bank of uh, safe deposit boxes. We can't find any in Steve Sakosha's name. Does he have a middle name? I said, yeah, his middle name is Anthony. They looked down the list and said, oh, well, Stephen Anthony has box number 1077. They put a key in. Boom. Uh, five, five million dollars in Deutschmarks, Franks, dollars, whatever. Uh, then they arrest Hill and they go back to his hotel. They search it and they find a map to all of the money. Right. So now Hill's in jail. Sakosha's main lawyer is now in jail in Europe and he's supposed to start trial Monday. So what does he do? The next day he shows up. He's on a stretcher. He says, oh, I'm in pain. I can't go. to. I'm not, you know, like all the mobsters, they come in with, you know, like a good fellows with the uh, oxygen masks and everything. <laughs> he didn't have an oxygen mask, but he's on a stretcher being carried by four marshals. And he's moaning and groaning. And, and they have a doctor say, 
well, uh, yeah, I think he's injured. And finally, the, the, the very good prosecutor named Jim Levy questions us. So did, do you have an X-ray of broken bones? No. Oh, you have an X, something that shows torn ligament? No. He says, uh, you basically tell us he, you lift his leg and he moans, and that's how you know he's hurt? Well, yeah. <laughs> and the judge says he's, he's fit for trial. And then the next day, he walks in on his own, sits down like there's nothing wrong. And the judge makes a note. Well, that little trick is called obstruction, right? Mm-hmm. That led to the difference between his conviction of uh, 20 years and 660 years because the, there were there's increments and that pushed him into the life category uh that little thing uh that stunt and anyway his wife tried the same thing she was she was unhealthy but that that failed then that's not it then the slug lawyer he realizes people are getting killed over this right so the next day he comes in with his lawyer a woman who's patting his back and rubbing his neck saying my client is too ill to go to trial he, this is the lawyer saying he he's unfit for trial. Oh, <laughs> so they, they, it, it was it was like almost a comedy. So he, had to, so he had to get another lawyer. And then we finally go to trial. And one of the elements, like I said, was you have to prove drugs. Well, we didn't have any, even though I had all these records of gold and money. And the, the lawyers were talking, saying, geez, I don't think we're going to make it. I don't think we're going to make it. Finally, we have all the witnesses have gone up on the stand. And we're down to like the last witness, who's Archie. He's actually his name is Escobar, one of Escobar's cousins. So Archie was the guy that would send the couriers to the Manhattan, keep track of all the cash. So anyway, Archie was arrested. He didn't wasn't able to escape. So he shows up, he sits on the stand and he's not familiar with any of these rules in America. So he's on the stand and the prosecutor asked him, Archie, did, did your boss ever ask you to deliver anything besides money to Mr. Se- to, 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 besides money for him, not to Sikosha, anything besides money? And Archie says, yes. Because he's looking for a deal, right? He wants to please everybody. Yes, the prosecutor says, ask him, what did you deliver besides money for your employer? Archie looks at every the judge, he looks at the, the jurors, says, cocaine. Objection. The, the, uh, the defense says, he, he's not a witness. You've introduced no drugs. We've got no lab reports. It, it, that's speculation. And, uh, you know, it, it's as if a corn farmer you know, said I delivered corn and, and he couldn't prove it was corn because he didn't have a lab report, you know, to say it was a piece of corn, you know. Well, it had mm. he was supposed to describe it as a bunch of cur- yellow kernels held together on a cob. But I don't know if it was corn, you know, the, that's, that's <laughs> like the uh, like the drug agents. They can only say, you know, it was a white powdery substance, a appearance like cocaine. But I mm. so anyway, they Levy is trained with the with the drug agents to on the stand doing similar. So he's the judge says that you know sustain. You can't ask that question. So Levy says, uh, "Can I rephrase?" The judge yes. So he looks to Archie. Now I guess he's half assuming he's going to answer the description of it. You know. So he says, "Archie, can you describe what you delivered?" Now the drug agent would say white powder. Archie says, "Yes, I can." He says, "Okay." But I want you to describe it. He says, okay. So he looks to the judge. He, he, you know, they slapped him down a minute ago. He looks to the judge. The judge nods. Looks to the prosecutor. The prosecutor nods. Looks to the jury and smiles. He says, cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> he, he described it as cocaine again. The jury yeah. starts laughing. They they throw out the question, but they, the jury can't un, 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 uh, unhear what they just heard. You know? Yes. So he's convicted. He's convicted. Uh, he gets 660 years. And when his, his brother-in-law, Mick, was getting uh, his sentence of 18 years, he sees me sitting in the stands and he looks over, he stands up, he's getting the handcuffs put on and he knows me personally. 
He's the one who said he's going to kill me. He, he looks over at me in the middle of the stands of all these people, crowded room. Keep smiling, Pat. Uh, and that became like a joke at the U.S. attorneys. Every time I'd see someone at the U.S. attorney, they said, Pat, you're still smiling, you know, for getting the conviction. You know, anyway, that was that. That's how the story ended. He was convicted. He's still in jail. Uh, Six hundred and sixty years. His wife's got out after 14. And uh, it was a uh, very, uh, very remarkable case. And the only reason I started writing the book is because every time people would hear about it, they say that should be a movie. That should be a book. Mm-hmm. So. I decided, well, I'll, I'll write a book and I'll write a screenplay and maybe someday someone will, will pick it up, you know, that comes across the right desk. Yeah, and, and that's kind of how these things happen. But you, the fact that you wrote a book and thousands of copies have been sold and here we are talking about a story, every bit as good and intriguing as The Untouchables and Goodfellas, the great hit stories of the day, and you've gone out there and turned it into a screenplay. Tell me what happens after this, and we've only got a couple of minutes left, but um, when do you decide or how much longer do you stay um, as a law enforcement officer before you retire? And is life normal at that point or are you elevated? to uh, a different level after you've solved this case? Well, after the, now during this case, the IRS, they just want to collect le- legal tax money. They don't. They never wanted me to pursue this. And they actually forced transferred my boss and his boss for not making me close it down. So, but I, because the U.S. attorney and the FBI and everyone got involved, they were overwhelmed and they, they couldn't stop me. But they decided afterwards that they didn't they wanted to stop all of us from doing money laundering cases they hired william webster former fbi director to come up with the conclusion irs shouldn't do these cases so he did and then the irs management put out a letter to everyone saying we will no longer do money laundering cases only tax cases you know on honest income like against plumbers and waitresses and i said I don't want to work. That's not why I came here. They said in the letter, they said, and if anyone's not happy with doing those type of cases, they should leave. I said, I resign. So I resigned and I went to work for the Justice Department and I started doing investigations of drug traffickers, uh, gun, gun traffickers and murderers. And I wrote a second book called Ivan Sent Me about this Russian mobster who sent hitmen to his ex-girlfriend's house because he didn't want to pay child support. And he told them, the last thing you do before you slit her throat is you tell her, Ivan sent you. And that's and that actually happened and it became a cold case for three years until some of the guns that he was trafficking three years later showed up in my area in Springfield where I was investigating gun traffickers. And then I started following that lead all the way back to Ivan. Uh, and that took a couple years and and Ivan got the death penalty. And uh, that was where I went after the Treasury. And then after that, I went to FinCEN. I'm uh, not FinCEN, excuse me, uh, TDAC, uh, where I terrorist device center. And I started investigating international terrorists. And then eventually that led me to a terrorist uh, hub in Mosul, Iraq. And I eventually, the army asked me to go to Mosul with them and investigate there. And I did. So I spent two years in Mosul, Iraq, and then Baghdad. And then I retired. You and- kind of think that you've squeezed in a life's work in in, in just those uh those years are quite incredible, uh, but you, you've been everywhere. You've had two stories that are worthy of books and obviously Hollywood movies at some stage, quite incredible. And for those people that might want to uh, pick up your book, what's the best place for them to find it, Pat? Yeah, well, Amazon.com, uh, you have to just query The Coin Store by Patrick Burns and it should pop up on Google. Uh, or the Ivan Sent Me by Patrick Burns. Those are the two books. There were 
The Coin Store is available on ebook, paperback, and audiobook. I actually uh, have an audiobook version. And Ivan sent me the ebook and paperback only. And my third yeah, book has not been written yet. And, and that's something that uh, may, well, you wouldn't want it to be fiction at this point because you've lived uh, better stories than uh, than you could even possibly make up. An incredible story traced back to Rhode Island of all places. Just amazing, Patrick. It's been a, a thrill, a delight to be able to get you on and to relive. And it's uh, quite incredible that after 36 years, you can still remember, you know, so much detail. Obviously, you've lived it, but uh, it's that it's that ability in that. And obviously, it's why you were such a great uh, police officer and, and, and soldier just the same. Uh, and I appreciate that uh, you're able to spend that time with us today to explain it. And I hope that we can come back and, uh, on, on another occasion and talk about uh, Ivan's story, a horrific story. Uh, but once sure. again, there you were in, in the thick of it. Quite incredible. Well, we're going to take a break and we're going to have the news update in just a moment. And when we return, Alastair Pope, Lieutenant uh, in the Australian Army, will be here, retired, uh, to talk about his adventures and journeys in his career and also life in Vietnam, a very different different take on it. Take the news now. You're watching, listening to TNT.